Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michaels' 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. Well, hey there, and welcome back. This is Walk Through the Bible, week number 30. We're, re- we're talking today about our reading this week, which is for in the Daily Bible, the dates of July 23rd through the 29th, or pages 934 to 963. I just want to say, first of all, if some of you have fallen behind, it's okay. We all fall behind at times. I've been known to do a whole month's reading on one Saturday. So don't worry. Life happens. These things just, it just happens. So you have a choice. Just continue listening listening to the weekly podcast and following that way until you can start reading again. Or, of course, you can go back and read uh, at a time and listen later. Uh, it's up to you. But I'd really encourage you just to keep listening each week and let that take the place of your reading until you can start reading again. So let's review where we were last week. Last week, we had Manasseh, who was the most evil king in Judah's history. And as a result, God allowed him to be hauled off to Babylon, where the Assyrians showed him how strong they were, and uh, he was humbled. He repented, he called out to the Lord, and he was miraculously allowed to come back to Judah course, now he's a puppet king uh, to Assyria, but nevertheless, uh, he was allowed to continue his life, and he got right with the Lord. It's a wonderful turnaround story, and it's a great story of God's forgiveness for those who repent, no matter how bad they were, no matter how bad their sins were. We also read last week about the prophet Nahum, who prophesied that Assyria was going to fall. Now, just imagine Assyria is 300 years old, and to have a prophecy like that, that the almighty Assyrian empire that's 300 years old is going to fall? But sure enough, we're going to hear about that later, I think next week, uh, where we talk about Assyria. So this week, now we're going to continue the story. Manasseh, the great king that turns around his life, dies. And his son, Ammon, becomes king. And his son is so evil that they killed him right away. And so the next son of Manasseh, Josiah, uh, becomes king as a eight-year-old child. Now, um, 2 Kings 23, verses 25 through 26, sort of wrap it up about Josiah. So let me read it for you. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger which burned against Judah because of all that that Manasseh had done. So Josiah, even at eight years old, 
He uh, is obviously influenced by the preaching of Zephaniah as well as Jeremiah, and it produces a very godly king once he is old enough to actually begin making decisions for himself. So let's look now at the prophet Zephaniah and what he was preaching at this time. You know, um, King Josiah is a child, so it seems like God raises up another descendant of King Hezekiah to preach spiritually to the nation, knowing that Josiah, the child king, wasn't able to do that. And he warns of coming judgment, of course, against the immorality and the injustice and the pagan idolatry. And central to the theme of Zephaniah is about the, quote, the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is an interesting concept here because it has a very immediate concept that the day of the Lord is coming for Judah and it's going to come soon, where Judah is going to suffer judgment for her sins. But secondly, that there's a coming day of the Lord for the nations after that, where they will be judged because of their treatment of his people. And then thirdly, there is a future day of the Lord in which all of the wicked will be judged. Each time that the prophet describes these days of the Lord, he also says that God will save his faithful remnant. So what is the day of the Lord? Well, first of all, Zephaniah kind of defines it, you could say, in chapter 2. The day of the Lord, it's here, and it's a day of wrath. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says this, Seek the Lord, all you humble in the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, because you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Now, speaking to you and me today in the 21st century, if you struggle with God's anger against idolatry and their rejection of him, know that first he told them how to avoid it and that his grace and his mercy were always there for those who would repent, as Zephaniah here says, Seek the Lord, you humble. Seek righteousness and seek humility. And perhaps you'll be sheltered in the day of the Lord's anger. Now, moving on in chapter 3, Zephaniah then begins to list Judah's sins. She's an oppressor, she's rebellious, and she's defiled. Here in 3.7, it says, O oh, Jerusalem! I thought, surely you will fear me and accept correction. Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all that they did. So the Lord here is saying, Jerusalem, I thought better of you. I thought that you would want to obey me and escape this, but you didn't. And then Zechariah, Zephaniah ends here with hope. And, and once again, the plans of God to one day restore his people. So in chapter 3, uh, verses 18 through 20, it says that God will remove the bad influencers 
and he's going to deal with their oppressors, and then he's going to rescue them and gather them back home. And in verse 17, it says, The Lord your God is with you. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. That's the prophet saying, this is what's going to happen. This is what God is going to do. He's going to rejoice over you with singing. And then the Lord himself gets in the last word here in verse 20. And he says, I will gather you. I will bring you home when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. So that is the book of Zephaniah, one of judgment and warning of the day of the Lord, but ends with those beautiful verses of hope. Now let's get back to our story of, jo of Josiah. Josiah now is getting older, and I think he's probably heard some of the preaching of Zephaniah. He's learned about the sins of the past, and so he begins to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the idolatry. And um, at the age of 18, I believe, he begins cleaning the temple and destroying paganism. And we're going to talk more about that next week, where we get into more detail about Josiah's reforms. But they began here at this point in our story. And now I want to talk about the prophet Jeremiah. You know, Zephaniah may have actually mentored Jeremiah, and Huldah, the prophetess that we hear about later, was a relative of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a priest in Jerusalem, and his prophecies are actually referred to in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel. Jeremiah was a really amazing prophet, and his ministry spanned almost 50 years throughout the reigns of five kings of Judah. And this is why we're going to be talking about Jeremiah over the next five weeks, because there's so much history that he witnessed and that he spoke into and that he is a part of. Now, the book of Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible, if you look at the number of words in that book. 33,000 words in the book of Jeremiah. It's longer than Isaiah. It is longer than the book of Psalms. It's a, a magnificent book. Um, the, during his preaching of 50 years, the Assyrian Empire is weakening and Babylon is rising. And uh, the book of Jeremiah, I just want to be clear, it's not all prophecies, although I would say it is all prophetic, but it's made up of oracles and addresses and also prayers of Jeremiah. We're going to hear Jeremiah as he prays to the Lord and, and speaks to the Lord, and we're going to get to know his personality a bit more than we have and will of other of the prophets. Um, the book of Jeremiah is not arranged in any order either topically or chronologically. And so for this reason, I'm so grateful for the Daily Bible and for our reading guide that's going to help us walk through Jeremiah chronologically, looking at the story. Now, the book of Jeremiah begins with 
his call, which took place around 626 BC. He was a young man, but we don't know his age. But I want to make a note here. He was called to be a prophet, as was Isaiah. You're not trained up to be a prophet. You are called of God to be a prophet. And that's why often they were reluctant. They felt inadequate. We saw that in Isaiah, and we're going to definitely see that here in Jeremiah. I want to quote to you from the editorial in the Daily Bible. I thought it just really uh, described it so well. It says, In fairness to Jeremiah, he may have had good reason to be reluctant. At the time of his call, he's still a youth, though his exact age is not known. And had he known exactly how much opposition, persecution, and personal rejection he would face over the next 50 years, he probably would have tried to escape his calling, just as Jonah did. Jeremiah was called to prophesy for almost 50 years, and never was he really received. He had no following. He had few friends. He had a secretary named Baruch that wrote down what he said, but he was paid. He, it was a very lonely life. God told Jeremiah not to marry, not to have children, not to go to feast, not even to go mourn the dead. It was a very, very hard and lonely calling that Jeremiah had. So today I want to talk about two things that we're reading about this week in Jeremiah, as I think we're reading through Jeremiah 1 through 9. First is his calling that we read about in Jeremiah 1, and then we're going to talk about what's known as his temple sermon. But let's start with his calling. So uh, chapter 1 tells us the year that he was called into his ministry and that his ministry lasted until Judah went into exile. And his ministry actually lasted a few years beyond that. So it was about 47 years uh, of his ministry. So uh, verses 4 through 5. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And then we read Jeremiah's response in the next verse. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. And so the Lord responds in the next verse. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Then the Lord gives Jeremiah two visions. So the word of the Lord came to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. And the Lord said to me, You have seen correctly, for I am watching to see 
that my word is fulfilled. This vision was a play on words because the word for almond is shakad, which comes from the root shakad, which is the word for watching. So the Lord was doing a play on words here, but also it's quite profound because the almond tree is the first tree to blossom very, very early in the spring. And so it's a harbinger that the spring is coming. So you would watch the almond tree to see when does it blossom? Because when it blossoms, that means that the spring is coming, that a new season is here. So the Lord says, I am watching. I am watching to fulfill my word. So the timing is critical here. Now, continuing on then in verse 13, the word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a pot that is boiling, I answered. It is tilting toward us from the north. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I'm about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands had made. Now the meaning of this vision was very simple that Jeremiah, the judgment is coming from the north. That meant Assyria and her um, coalition or alliance of nations. Now, in the end, it is Babylon that comes, but Babylon has taken over Assyria and comes from the north. So Jeremiah knew that at least it was not going to come from Egypt in the south. It was going to come from the north. And as he watched Assyria fall and Babylon become the main empire of the north, uh, this was definitely carried out. So God's final word to Jeremiah in this calling is in verse, starts with verse 17. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them, whatever I command you, do not be terrified by them or I will terrify you before them. Today I've made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Wow, what an encouraging word. You're to stand up against the whole land. They're all going to fight against you. That is the calling of Jeremiah. And I wanted you to have it in mind as you begin now to go through the book of Jeremiah. He is speaking in opposition to everyone around him. It's a very hard calling, but God has told him, I will rescue you. Now, in Jeremiah 2, um, the Lord lists here that my people have committed two sins. One 
They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, cisterns that are broken and will not even hold water. So the Lord uses such picture um, words here through Jeremiah and to Jeremiah and in Jeremiah. So profound. I am the spring of living water who they've rejected and they've gone and worked, worked, worked to build cisterns that are broken. They're not going to hold any water whatsoever. In Jeremiah 3 verses 19, it says, How gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. Return, faithless people, and I will cure you of your backsliding. This is God's heart for his people. You have rejected me. As an unfaithful wife, please return. Please return, and I will cure you. I will heal you. This is the Lord's heart for his people. Now, I also want to talk about Jeremiah's temple sermon. So one of the very hard things that God told Jeremiah to do was to go stand at the entrance of the temple and to prophesy, of course, against them. So why the temple? Well, they were using the temple almost as a lucky charm. Now think about this for a minute. The people of Judah had seen the kingdom of, Nor of Israel in the north fall to the Assyrians, but yet they had had this amazing, miraculous deliverance under King Hezekiah the angel of the Lord had gone out and smote the Assyrians. And Judah, Jerusalem, had been saved. So they're thinking to themselves, well, it's because of the temple and because of the God that we worship in the temple, right? But at the same time, they were out worshiping the idols and the pagan gods, and they were going onto the hilltops and down in the valley, and they were doing all these detestable things, but then they'd go to the temple to worship the God of Israel, and it was kind of like a lucky charm. This was going to keep us safe, and as long as the temple's here, we're safe. We can do whatever we want to. And so Jeremiah goes and stands in front of the temple and says, don't say to me, the temple, the temple, the temple, because it's not going to protect you in the end. And a very interesting in here in Jeremiah 7, he says to them, you have made this house of mine a den of robbers. Does that sound familiar? Jesus uses that term later on when he himself stands in front of the in the temple, and he calls it a den of robbers. And here Jeremiah tells them the temple will be destroyed. In verse 32, there's something very interesting I want to point out here. It mentions how that they were going to the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. 
or Ben Hinnom in Hebrew, to burn their sons and daughters. And, and the Lord tells them, it will be called the Valley of Slaughter, for they're going to bury their dead there. And God was cursing that evil place, the Valley of Ben Hinnom. And I want to talk about this. The Valley of Hinnom is where, do you know, I've talked to you about the Kidron Valley. Well, the Kidron Valley goes north and south on the eastern side of Jerusalem, and it separates the Mount of Olives from the Temple Mount and where the city of David was. So that's the Kidron Valley goes all along there. Well, when it gets to the end of the city of David, it meets another valley that goes off to the northwest, and that's the Hinnom Valley. Well, um, here in this scripture, it's called, or in the Old Testament, it was called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, which means the Valley of the Children of Hinnom, but then it became shortened to the Valley of Hinnom, and in Hebrew, that was Gai Hinnom. And so Gai meant valley. It, did, it meant sort of a narrow valley, not a big, long, broad, huge valley, but a more narrow valley. And then uh, Hinnom was the name of the valley. This became then in the New Testament, where you have the influence of Aramaic and then, of course, Greek. Gai Hinnom became Gehenna. So, in Jesus always referred to Gehenna as a place of burning, a place where evil was and where evil would go. Well, in uh, the Valley of Hinnom, they went there to worship at Topheth, which they think means like an oven. And that's where they worshiped the god Moloch, and they actually conducted child sacrifice in the ovens there. So it was a place of burning, it was a place of evil, and it was a place of idolatry, of worshiping this detestable god, Moloch. So by the New Testament times, that's over. There's no worship of Moloch there, but it had become a place of refuse. It was the garbage dump. And so things were thrown out there. There was still burning there. It was an awful, horrible place. And so Gehenna was this place of burning and an evil, dirty place that you wouldn't want to go to. It's very, very interesting in the New Testament when Judas went to hang himself. The field of blood uh, is thought to have been right there near the Valley of Hinnom. And, um, and so his place would have been the place of evil, where evil was paid for, and where God had told them it's going to be a valley of slaughter, and that uh, the birds would be there for the caucuses, and, and more than likely the birds were there for Judas's carcass because it said that uh, his carcass was spread out all over. So um, interesting little piece of history there. So, um, hey, I think that that's enough for today. You're going to be reading uh, through uh, Jeremiah 9 this week. So you're going to see some of these repeat these themes repeated throughout there. And um, so I'm going to sign off for this week. 
and uh, wish you God's blessings as you read through his word, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Zephaniah. And um, until next week, I pray the Lord bless you and the reading of his word. See you back here next week. God bless. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA, all rights reserved.